Heavenly Father, your grace is evident to us in Christ, first and most of all, and in our faith given to us by the grace of God, and to the call on our lives and service to you, though we are inadequate to anything you would ask of us, Father, yet you condescend to open opportunities for us to serve at your feet. And Father, we do that imperfectly. We do that, Father, without the wisdom required, without the strength necessary. We, we do that, Father, in selfish motives at times. But here you are still, living in us, calling us, gently correcting us, moving us to where you want us to be. And you've done that in big ways in how you've orchestrated the work of this body and bringing it together. And you're doing it at every life in this room that has your spirit, Father in one way or another. We acknowledge all of these things, give you glory for all of these things. Thank you for all of these things. Thanking you, Father, not just for our victories in the day-to-day of our life, but also in the trials and in the tribulations. So that no matter what experience lies ahead of us in each day, Father, it is something that you will use to mold us into the person of Christ. We acknowledge that's how things are, that that's how you work, and that your word, Father, is the lamp unto our feet. It guides our path into holiness. We come to it now, Father, in a reverent expectation that what we learn, Father, will make us more pleasing to you if only we would listen and do as it asks. So I ask, Father, that we have that attitude in all of our hearts as we listen to it preached by the mouth of a man but spoken by the Spirit of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the more frightening consequences of Israel rejecting Jesus and Jesus turning the kingdom proposal into a kingdom program, one of the more frightening aspects of that is that he's turning the program over to his disciples. And these guys were simply not ready to assume the responsibility of the church, not as they began that work, right? None of these guys were trained. None of them were ministers in their background. None of them were rabbis. None of them had been even seeking for this role. Remember, they're fishermen, they're tax collectors. One of the guys is is in his teens, None of these guys could possibly appreciate what lies ahead for them in the role that God's going to give them in trying to lead a church out of nothing in the midst of persecution. Nonetheless, that's the plan. That's God's plan. God's plan is to hand over leadership of the church to fishermen, tax collectors, teenagers, and the like who have no idea what they're doing. That should encourage you, by the way. Now, obviously, Jesus is head of the church. It is by His Spirit that everything gets done in the church. Every leader that is in the church is under the headship of Christ. It doesn't really matter if these guys have got any preparation or any background to do the job because the Lord makes those He calls equal to the challenge that He puts in front of them. You often heard people probably say that He who He calls, He also equips, right? Well, I have a saying, I say it this way. The Lord calls unqualified people to serve Him, but He will not leave you untrained. The problem is the training comes in ways you do not expect. It comes when you're not looking for it. And therefore, one of the more important sections in the Gospel of Matthew is the one we're now entering into in which the Lord is going to prepare His disciples for this task of taking over. He's going to teach these guys about what it means to do ministry and how they recruit others to do the same. And His work is going to be made a lot more difficult because so much of what these guys thought they knew about ministry came from Pharisees. Because they were the models of the day. Pharisaic Judaism saturated the culture of their time. So when they thought about serving in ministry, who did they look to for their example? They looked to the men of the day. 
Pharisees. And so they came into this role thinking that serving God under Christ meant learning what to do as a Pharisee, which means legalistic, unloving, self-serving. That's who they thought they needed to be. Now, I'm not saying these guys were bad guys. I'm just saying they didn't know better. So Jesus has got to turn all of that experience, what little they had, and all of those expectations and all of those assumptions on its head and replace it with an approach to ministry that these guys had probably never seen before. How would you like that job? The lessons that you're going to learn in today's chapter and in others that we're going to get into in the next section... It may not sound very revolutionary for you, and I say that not because you, you know, we're all so wise. I don't think that. It's not necessarily that. It's just that we've been around for a while with the kingdom program. We have 2,000 years of kingdom program behind us, and we got the Bible. So for us, eh, the lessons seem pretty obvious. This is what ministry should look like. But remember, you came to know of the kingdom program from what these guys told you in their writing. So what's really interesting is to watch how they got to the point that they knew what they've taught us, that is, through the scriptures of the New Testament. And first day of their training begins here in chapter 14, verse 13, and it begins probably with Jesus' most impressive, most extraordinary miracle on how to do ministry. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself, and when the people heard of this... They followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the village and buy food for themselves. So it says in Matthew that Jesus had heard of John the Baptist's death, and as he does, he says that Jesus withdrew from there. Now, there refers to somewhere on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, but we don't know exactly where his departure point was. Now, I want to put a map up, our first map today. I want to give you a bit of geographic reference here. Now, we know from the prior section that we've been studying, he was just in Nazareth, remember? The last thing we studied in here last week was Jesus in Nazareth teaching and being rejected. Look on the map. Behind me, you'll see Nazareth in the lower left corner, right? So he was just there, And he's about to travel across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And we know when he's done with this whole episode that we're studying today, he comes back across the water to Capernaum. Now you see where Capernaum is up there, right? By the way, you know how he gets back? He walks on the water. That's next week. So if you look on that map, where did he depart from? Well, it could have been Tiberias. It could have also been Capernaum. He may have left from Capernaum and then come back to Capernaum. I'm going to make that assumption. It's just an assumption, but uh, I'm up here and you're not. So, in any case, the reason for his departure, according to Matthew, was at the hearing of John's death. Now, Jesus takes his journey for a lot more reasons than simply an opportunity to go retreat and mourn for John. And we know this because what he's about to go do is perform the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which, for the most part, most, if not all, Christians have heard of this story. We have a considerable amount of context in the other Gospels about this particular miracle. In fact, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is unique in the New Testament. It is the only miracle of Christ that is found in all four Gospels. Do you know that? The only one. Which tells you something. It tells you about the impression 
that this made on all of the disciples. Truly, this was a lesson none of them forgot. And because it's recorded in all four, we have a lot of background on what was going on, why he went, and what he did. And this is some of the stuff we learned. First, Mark tells us in chapter 6 that Jesus and the disciples were exhausted from ministering to so many people. Let me read you that, Mark six thirty-one. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. So the Lord told his disciples, we got to get away from this crowd and the demands of the crowd. I need you to go with me to the eastern side of the Galilee. So that's one of the reasons why he did this. Now, earlier in Matthew, there was a point in time when we were studying earlier that I explained to you that in the case of the territory around the Sea of Galilee, there were two regions. And I'll show you that on the next map. The Jews occupied the western side of the lake, or the Sea of Galilee, as it's called. Gentiles occupied the eastern side in Jesus' day. You remember the last time we saw Jesus go across this body of water into the eastern region, the Gentile region? That's when he visited Gerasoch, remember? And that's where he saw the man who was in the tombs, and he cast out the demons. They go in the pigs, the pigs go in the water. That all happened on the eastern side. And the reason there were even pigs there to begin with was because that's the Gentile side of of the lake. Jews rarely, if ever, ventured into the Gentile side. They stayed away from the Gentile side. That's why Jesus periodically goes to the eastern side, because it's an escape from the Jewish crowds. The Jewish crowds would not follow him if he went all the way to that side. But this time, you notice Jesus chooses to journey to a spot where Matthew says the people followed. Why did they follow him this time? Well, Luke tells us, that the secluded place, the remote region that he went to, is near the small fishing village called Bethsaida. Now look on the map. Bethsaida is the dividing point between the Jew and the Gentile region that surrounds the lake. See Bethesda in the north? You see it's right on the juncture. So if you were a Jew on the Jewish side and Jesus goes to Bethsaida, it's close enough to the border that it's worth venturing into that area as a Jew and not being worried. Far different than if you go to Gerasau. Gerasau is sort of just north of the area there marked Hippus. So Jesus goes to that place and the crowd follows him because it's accessible. Now if I assume for a moment that Jesus departed from Capernaum, and that's where you get the next slide. If so, he sailed about three to four miles. If he was from somewhere further south, maybe Gennesaret or Tiberias, it's as much as eight miles. I'm saying Capernaum for this reason, because the crowds were able to follow him and keep up. And so from a distance on land, they couldn't have walked too far because the scripture makes clear that as he arrives, they do too. So from Capernaum, walking around the northern edge of the lake, it's about a five-mile walk. You can do that in about two hours. A few men in a fishing boat could probably do the same thing. So they arrive at about the same time. So his plan to evade the crowds wasn't going to last for very long. And you know what? He knew that. He knew that. Which tells us there's, again, more reason than simply getting away from the crowds or mourning for John. What else is he doing here? Well, he's working a plan to prepare to teach his disciples a lesson that he can only teach by making this journey. And you get confirmation of this from John's Gospel. John tells us in chapter 6 that what's happening here in this moment happens at Passover, around the time of the Passover. And that, friends, is the final clue that we need to understand what Jesus is doing here. You'll remember Passover. It's the memorial from Exodus. It's the feast, the memorial that God established that reminds us of when Moses led a group of Jews through the Red Sea 
and into a desolate area without food, without water. When they get there, Moses ascends up a mountainside, leaving the people down below. And eventually those people require food. And so from up above, Moses calls down manna from heaven, and the people are fed miraculously. So now we're going to see a story in which Jesus takes a journey so that he can use the circumstances in this journey to establish a picture of himself as the fulfillment of Passover. How is he going to do that? Well, like Moses, he's going to cross a body of water. And as he crosses that body of water, he's going to reach a Gentile territory that's desolate, without food, and a large group of Jews are going to follow him into that area. And also, Jesus will retreat, it says, up a mountainside, leaving them down below. And while he is there and they are below, they will seek for food, and he will feed them miraculously with bread from heaven. And then later he'll tell them in John 6, I am the bread of life. So Jesus is making this journey to invite a comparison between him and what's happening now and the Exodus story and what God did then. And he orchestrates this experience. It's like a living parable. I wonder if in the moment he wasn't looking at the disciples at times saying, wink, wink, hey, you kind of notice anything here? Does this sound familiar? He's trying to get their attention about this issue. And he sets the scene. But even then, that's not the real purpose here. That is to say, that's a means to a greater end. What is the real end purpose of putting this big thing together, orchestrating this whole moment, putting on this show? Well, to understand that, we have to understand the lesson itself. And that's where we're headed. In verse 14, we're told that Jesus sees the large crowd below and he has compassion on them and he heals their sick. That verse introduces an important caveat to something I've taught you here earlier from not long ago. Remember I said not long ago that Jesus' earthly ministry changed after his rejection. Among other things that changed, after he was rejected by Israel, he stops offering miracles to the masses. Remember I told you that? He now begins requiring faith as a prerequisite before he will perform a healing for somebody. And you're going to see that shift in ministry over and over again as we go through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. How he asks questions and he seeks evidence of faith before he takes the step of healing. But there are going to be occasions when Jesus will choose to act against that pattern by healing large numbers of people. And you see that here in verse 14. On occasion, in times of great need, like we have here, he will have compassion for the people. And in those moments, he acts contrary to the general pattern, healing people without demanding faith. And those exceptions prove the rule. That is, they are rare, and they're always preceded by that little statement from Matthew. He had compassion on them. That's Matthew's way of saying, Jesus, in the love that he has for humanity, in his compassion, saw an opportunity he couldn't pass up to heal. But it was not the norm anymore. It was the exception. So as evening approaches, the disciples look upon the huge crowd. And here's where we get to the heart of this lesson. You see the disciples. You can imagine what they're thinking. They're looking down on this crowd. Later we find out, of course, that this is a crowd of thousands of people. And as he looks down on them, they realize, obviously, there is no way that they can feed all these people. And I think they're probably concerned about the kind of discontent leading maybe even to violence or riots that could come about because these people have nothing. And they're all the way out there in the middle of nowhere. And so, in verse 15, these enterprising men propose a way to solve the problem. They suggest Jesus should make the crowds go into the nearby towns to find food for themselves. Notice their choice of words, though. They say, send the crowds away. In other words, order them to leave. 
And their thinking reflects the attitude of Pharisaic Judaism in that day. Putting it in my own words, here's what the disciples were saying. Look at all these people. There's so much trouble to us. They are a burden on us. Help us, Jesus. Tell them to stop being a burden on us. Tell them to go get their own food somewhere else. Now, again, that's my words, but that's the sense of this. Who were the disciples thinking about when they told Jesus, make them go away? And at first, if you're not careful, you might read this thinking they have concern for the people. Oh dear, it's, it's dark. We have no food. Oh, these poor people, Jesus. Send them away and let them go get some food. If you hear it that way, you're not hearing it right. The truth is they only had concern for themselves. They're forgetting why the crowds even were there in the first place. They had come hoping for Jesus to minister to them in one way or another. They did nothing wrong. This crowd, friends, did nothing wrong. They came with hope, they came with desire and needs. Look, let me tell you, that's what good ministry is founded upon. People who have needs and know it. That is where good ministry begins. You know, the hardest person to minister to is the one who doesn't think they need to be ministered to. In any context, especially in teaching. Nevertheless, the disciples could only see a crowd of people bringing burdens. And here's the irony, they're getting in the way of ministry. Jesus, make them go away. we got other things we got to do here. Well, wait a minute. Hey, uh, Andrew, Peter, Simon, wh- why are we here? Why do we exist? You know, that attitude reminds me of those circumstances where you see a rude clerk. And I know we stereotypically make fun of, like, government agencies when we think like this. But it's not just there. It's obviously there. But it's not just there. <laughs> if there's someone in the post office or the DMV here, you know, i got a guard here. I just want you to know that. But you know that scene, right? you got that rude clerk who treats the customer as if they are an interruption or an intrusion into their day, right? What should that clerk understand? That clerk should recognize you as a customer are the very reason they exist, right? I mean, it's because of the customer that the business is in business. And friends, it's because of the flock that shepherds have reason to shepherd. That's why shepherds exist. A shepherd's heart that doesn't hold a flock's weaknesses or needs against them, is the shepherd you want. That's what it means to be in ministry. Shepherds are supposed to recognize that the weaknesses that that are in all of us as part of God's flock are the very reason we have need and opportunity to minister. In fact, did you know that the Bible teaches, and this is one of the more stunning truths of the Scripture that people often don't know, the Bible teaches that the more needs exist in our body, the better it is for us. That's what Paul teaches. In 1 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul says this. He's speaking about that analogy, as you may remember, about the body, that a hand cannot be without a foot, and an eye cannot be without an ear. You remember that part, maybe, of 1 Corinthians? He gets to the end of that, and he says this. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And then he says this. On the contrary, It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members, I have no need of it. You know what Paul says there? He says that the members of the corporate body that seem to us to be weaker are actually the most necessary among us. 
Now, when he says weaker, he's referring here to the brothers and sisters. I'm going to be honest with you here. These are the brothers and sisters that are hard to love. I mean, these are the ones who are less spiritually mature. They carry a lot of sin baggage. They may irritate you. They may say things or do things that are wrong. Or they may have messy lives. They put burdens on you left and right. You know, uh, they're just the ones in the body that when you see them coming, you kind of wish you had an excuse that you could turn and go somewhere else. That's your flesh. That's not the spirit. But those moments happen to everybody. I'm just being honest, right? Paul says they are not a problem to be sent away. Paul says they are necessary, and then he added, they are due even greater honor. Now, you know what he means? Greater honor in this context, receiving greater honor, it means receiving a greater share of ministry through the service of the body to them. That's what he means by greater honor. It is an honor, friends, to have someone minister to you in the body of Christ. That is your honor to receive ministry. Because somebody is investing self-sacrificially in your spiritual growth. Even if it's just a moment in passing as you work with them in the church. And friends, let me tell you what that means. If someone spends time investing in you spiritually through some service in the body, do you realize that the dividends that that will pay for you come in eternity? Because as they help make you more spiritually mature, you are in a better position to earn eternal reward. And so as they invest in you, you're receiving greater honor, not just in the sense of their attention, but in the sense of the product that God may use them to produce in you. The weaker members of the body are necessary, Paul says, because you know what? They give purpose to your spiritual gift. The weaker members of the body are your customers and you're the clerk. Are they in the way? Or are they the reason you're here? We don't want professional, uptight, ready-to-go, prepackaged, perfect Christians walking in here because we'd have nothing to do. We want people who come in here needing us to help them because you know what? That script gets flipped at some point, and they're there to help you. In fact, I will tell you this. You will gain far more from serving the weaker members than they gain in receiving your service. And you know why? Because when you minister to people who have rough edges, you truly learn how to love someone the way Christ loves you, self-sacrificially. And I need to share a little secret with you, because sometimes we are that unlovable person. And those rough edges are ours. So I just want you to keep that in mind. Be grateful that Christ requires that we minister to those who are weaker and that he has asked his ministers to be lovingly caring for those who bring burdens, because sometimes that's us. Now that is not how a Pharisee saw himself in ministry. A Pharisee saw his job this way. He would say this to himself. He would say, I'm the model Jew. I sacrifice, I study, I tithe, I devote endless hours to purity, to washings, to holiness. I am God's representative to his people. And just as men are blessed to receive God's fellowship, so are the Jewish people privileged to receive my ministry. And just as the Lord receives praise and honor for his glory and wisdom, so I should receive praise and honor among the people. That's my own wording. But I can assure you that is consistent with the mindset of a Pharisee. And the Bible has a word for that attitude in ministry. Do you know what that word is? Lording. Lording over people. 
That's what the Bible calls it. The word lording means to exercise dominion over someone while expecting them to respond with homage and obedience. And in speaking about this mentality, Jesus says this. It comes up later in Matthew's Gospel, but I'm just going to read a short passage. Matthew 20, 25. He says, Jesus called them to himself. He calls the disciples to himself. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way with you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. All right, now we're going to cover that passage later when we get there in a couple weeks. It's chapter 20, so it was obviously a joke. But for today, today you should see his point pretty obviously, right? Ministers are not lords over people. Now, I'm going to use the term minister somewhat technically. In a general sense, we all minister. But there's a sense here that goes a little beyond that. That is, there are obviously in any congregation those that the Lord raises up who take roles of leadership and are set apart in that respect from the rest of the body. They're not more important. They're not more special. They're not more holy. They just get an extra dose of burden. I mean... I'm saying that, and it's a burden, you know, you do the work, it's a burden. They get an extra sense of that, they have an extra responsibility in that regard. That's the principal audience here. Ministers in that capacity are not to be lords over people, he says, rather they are to be servants to the people. In fact, the Greek word translated here as minister in what I read out of Matthew 20, it's the word dikonos, and the word dikonos could also be translated slave. Now listen to that. Pastors, elders, and other ministers are as slaves to God's people. But it's important you understand what he meant there. He wasn't suggesting the flock has authority over us. He wasn't suggesting that we're supposed to do your bidding. It's not in that sense. Jesus is saying that the church leadership is not supposed to adopt a haughty, self-serving attitude that thinks itself better than you, over you, such that you now serve it. That is not the concept of Scripture. Men and women who assume ministry positions in the body cannot use those positions of authority to serve their own interests, period. Which means you maintain an attitude of humility as best you can, you sacrifice where you have to, and you remember one thing above everything else. I'm here to serve you, you are not here to serve me. That's ministry. But those disciples grew up under Pharisaic Judaism. And so what they saw as their role models were men who assumed that kind of self-important power. And think about it from their point of view. They just became part of the inner circle of the Messiah. There's no better job than that. There's no higher place on the pecking order. So if their attitude is Pharisees are the model and they just got the highest job possible, how much more is that stoking pride in their heart and driving them to think they can take advantage of this? And no one should impose upon them. So Jesus teaches these men what ministry truly requires, and he does that through probably the most powerful example of self-sacrificial ministry you can find in the New Testament, save his death on the cross. Verse 16. Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, Well, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Well, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. 
There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. Well, he opens with this astonishing rebuke. There's really no other way to hear it. He tells the disciples, the people don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, if you were to translate that into English from its original Greek, most literally, this is what it said. They have no need to go away. You feed them. I love that. You feed them. What he just did was he put the burden where it belongs. He put it on the shepherds. It's a flock. You feed them. Now, in fairness to the disciples, before I get any more upset at them, how could you expect them to feed so many people? Right? We need to ask that question. What was he thinking? You, know, you heard back in verse 21 there that there's thousands of people. In fact, the disciples, when, they, when he puts it on them, they go, we got five and two, Jesus. What are we doing with this? Five and two. In John's gospel, we get a little more detail. We learn that Peter's brother, Andrew, was the first guy to notice that there was this young lad walking around selling the fish and the, and the loaves. You know, that's another detail of the story that doesn't get a lot of attention. They took these things from a little boy. I don't know if they paid him or not. <laughs> Knowing Jesus, I think he paid him. I don't know. But anyway, but Andrew's the first one to say, when he says, you feed him, Andrew says, well, we, we have these fish and these loaves over there. But then Andrew quickly says, oh, but that can't possibly help. I mean, that can't possibly work. There's too many people. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't ask them to come up with a solution by themselves. That wasn't the point. He asked them, set your goal on ministering to them. That's what he asked them. Look, if your first response to a call of ministry in some situation is to ask how, then you are doing ministry completely wrong. If that's your first instinct, how do I do this? It's wrong. Our first question when you consider ministry opportunity should be, does the Lord desire that I minister in this way? Should I do it? Does he want me to do it? That's your first question. Now, if the question is answered yes, well then, friends, I guarantee you that as you move ahead in time, you can do so confident that the Lord is going to direct you on the how as you go. If he wants you to do it, he didn't set you up for failure in the sense that he's just going to pull the rug out from under you and laugh at you when you fail. It's not what he does. But if you start every ministry effort with the question, how, do you know what? You will never do anything worthwhile for the Lord. You know why? Because ministry is fundamentally about doing things that are impossible, humanly speaking. That's why you call it ministry. If you try to answer the question, how, before you accept the challenge, you know what you start doing? You start substituting your own plans for the one that God is eventually going to reveal to you. And that's what you see happening here. Andrew started searching for a a supply of food after he was told to feed the crowd because in his mind, the first step is how. And when he looked, he saw no possible way to do it and he immediately gives up. If you wait to figure it out before you say yes, you'll never do anything. When he couldn't find enough, he said you can't minister. Jesus did not save you and call you and equip you for some kind of ministry so that you could solve problems for him. That's not how this works. He will give you ministry in one form or another so that he can solve problems through you and in you. That is, he will change you even as he's getting work done through you. Because as you obey him, as you allow him to do all the heavy lifting and whatever he's asked you to do, not only will the work get done, because that's what he's there to do through you, but he'll be growing you in the process. You'll learn a lot more walking with him as he does the work than you will trying to solve the problem without him. And then the Lord gets to rightly receive the glory, both for the work that he did through you and the work 
in making you who you become in Him. The disciples were so focused on solving the problem in their own power, they forgot Jesus was standing right there. That was the solution. So Jesus has to remind them of that. He gets started here in the work of demonstrating to these men how shepherds should do their job, how they feed sheep. Sheep are not supposed to go locate their own supply of food. You know, if sheep were able to find their own food, they probably wouldn't need a shepherd. Right? So shepherds are supposed to feed sheep, but there's a corollary to this truth. And the corollary is that shepherds are not supposed to produce food. They're not the source. Shepherds do not cause grass to grow on a hillside. Who makes the grass? The Lord has already prepared the field. He just asks you to lead people to it. That's what shepherding is in literal terms. And in spiritual terms, you are not the spiritual source for anybody. You are not the supply for anyone. I am not your supply, that's for sure. We shepherd people by feeding them, but our source comes from the Lord. We ourselves are just bringing people to that source. And the Lord orchestrates this well-known miracle because He wants to make that point clear. And He does it so vividly, right? Notice, once Jesus sets the disciples' mind here on feeding the crowd, he then begins to show them the how. The how comes out of their work. It doesn't predate the work. First, he says, tell all the people to sit on the grass. I love that little detail. In Mark's Gospel, we're told that they're, they're instructed to sit in groups of 100s and 50s. And it all sounds so precise and, and structured. And of course, that probably made it very manageable, very easy to distribute the food evenly and properly. Yeah, of course. And, and we can easily imagine all of those practical reasons. And also, by the way, if hungry people see food coming down the mountain, you know, you've got a, a rush to the food, you've got, you got chaos. It's a reminder that when we serve Christ, He's orderly. God is a God of order. And so the order will be there in the work. But there's a spiritual reason why he has them sit down in the grass. And you know what the main reason was? Because he was creating yet another picture for the disciples out of Psalm 23. The shepherd is the one who causes his sheep to lie down in green pastures. And the shepherd cares for his sheep. He makes sure they receive their rations. That's what he's doing now. It's like he's just talking to these guys through pictures. Hello, look who I am. Do you see the connections? And we do now through the word. And so the Lord instructs them to do things in keeping with the shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord gives thanks for food. Obviously, that's a consistent part of ministry, knowing that we thank the Lord as he works through us. And then there's a miracle to follow. But the miracle is the most amazing part of this, not in the fact that he multiplies, but in the way that he orchestrates the miracle in front of these men. We only hear that he breaks the bread, divides it, gives it to the disciples, and they distribute it. That's all we heard here. But when you look at the other Gospels, particularly John, you get such detail on how this took place. What actually happened was, Jesus gave the food that he broke from the initial number to the men, one at a time. They took their basket to Jesus. He put in a certain amount. They walked away. They had to walk down the mountainside to the people as they had been assembled and put a basket in a certain group. They'd take the food out. And then that disciple would have to pick that basket up and walk back up the hillside to Jesus. And then he would put a few more in. And then they'd have to walk back down that hillside to the next group. And this went on and on and on until the people had eaten their fill, it says. Now you have to wonder what's going on in the minds of the disciples as they do this routine. They knew that Jesus only started with a small amount of food. But because they are acting as waiters... They're not present to see the reproduction miracle. By the time they're getting back up there, there's a little bit of food waiting for them. Enough to fill their basket and they come back down. In between those trips, 
They're not seeing the food miraculously reappear. They just return each time to Jesus, get their basket filled, go back down the mountain. What he's teaching them is, this is what ministry in the kingdom program looks like. This is what it looks like to serve under me. And here's what he taught them. First, he taught them, he supplies miracles to his people through the hands of his servants. And that's why Jesus required each disciple to return to him many times to refill that basket. Look, friends, it's obvious if his priority had been efficiency, if his priority had been speed, what would he have done? He'd have walked down that mountainside, put the food in the center of the field, poof, and there'd been a mountain of food there, and then he would have said, all right, let's move on. That's not what he did. Why? Because that's not his goal. He intentionally distributed his food to that crowd in an inefficient way. Inefficiently. Through the hands of his disciples so that he could make a point. The point is, how will you see God working in your life? How will he make these things possible in your life? He doesn't do it by putting burning bushes in front of you left and right. Some person who is otherwise rather unimpressive and might even annoy you once in a while, will come into your life and do something as God appoints, and that was God's supply to you in some need in your life. Yeah, could he have put a burning bush in your life? Of course. But what grows your faith more? A lot of burning bushes creates a lot of people who have faith in burning bushes. Second thing he's teaching his disciples. Each one of those disciples' personal success in ministry depends on continually returning to the Lord to have him fill that basket. You know, if that disciple returned, he came back with something to offer. What if he didn't? What if Peter went down the mountain with his basket and he decided, you know, I'm done with this. I'm just going to take care of the people some other way. He runs out of food in a minute. And he has no need to be there anymore. He has no purpose. He has no benefit to anyone. Only if the disciples went back to Jesus did they continue to have something to offer the people. So not only were the disciples unable to find a solution in the beginning, and this is the point, not only could they not have started this on their own and figured out the plan on their own, neither could they sustain the ministry even after it began. There's no point in which you stop abiding in Jesus and things just kind of roll. That's not ministry. Even after he gave them a solution, they did not possess the power to perpetuate it. Ministry, friends, always requires abiding in Christ. That's the lesson of John 15. We go back to him to receive that which is valuable so that we can bring it back to the people one nugget at a time. Thirdly, in the course of their service and in the course of our service, the work you do in serving Christ will not seem like a miracle in the moment. Think about this again. Each time that basket was filled, it didn't seem like a miracle. I mean, yes, there was a miracle taking place, but not in that little moment. A man's hands picked up some bread and fish and put it in a basket. And the sense you get from all four Gospels as you read this account is that none of that multiplication happened within their sight. They just walked away with more food. But you know there was a miracle happening. It was happening over and over and over again. And friends, when you serve other other people in ministry, or when you are served, look, I'm standing here, I'm teaching you. Is this a miracle? (laughs) No. That's a miracle you're here. It's not a miracle that I'm up here standing and teaching and talking and so on. But when you step back, and when I look at the cumulative effect of what is now 20 years of Bible teaching, and I'm not crediting myself when I say this, not one bit. I'm the stupid disciple with an empty basket. 
But when I look at the cumulative effect of 20 years of teaching people the Bible and I hear the stories of what that's done in their lives, that's a miracle because I have no idea how I did anything useful. I don't know what I did. In the moment, it just feels like work. It just feels like helping people. It just feels like doing your job. It's only in hindsight that you realize, we started with a bunch of fish and and loaves. How did this come from it? Jesus. Fourthly, Jesus teaches the disciples in this experience that ministry... It's hard. It's hard work. How many times did they have to walk up and down that hillside that day? Do you suppose that some of them might have been complaining under their breath as they made that trip back up the 40th time? Can you hear Peter saying to Jesus, why don't you come down here, man? (laughs) I mean, meet me halfway for crying out loud. There are a lot of days when you wonder to yourself, why am I doing this? And at other times, you know, there's got to be an easier way to live than this. Look, friends, I'm not complaining. You know, this isn't self-pity. I mean, ministry is just hard work, and if you've done it, you know I'm right. Serving Jesus in ministry is a great privilege, and generally speaking, it's a joy. But there are going to be times when it's lonely, When you feel like you're alone, when you feel like everything is against you, there are times when it's difficult, there are times when it is gut-wrenching, and there are times when it's just plain physically hard. So if you're not prepared to give Christ your best effort and to endure the challenges of ministry, then friends, as he says, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Better not to start the work. And then finally, there's one more lesson for the disciples and the people. After the crowd's been fed, which I assume must have taken a few hours, Jesus orders the disciples to collect the excess food from the people. That excess food goes to the disciples, right? That's where they got their supply. But think about this for a minute. Couldn't he have just multiplied a few more baskets at the very end and then given those to the disciples? Instead, you know what he did? (laughs) He insisted that the disciples' food come from what had already been handed out to the people who were below This is what he did. He literally gave away the disciples' food, and then he required the disciples to go back begging the people to give it back. That's what he did. And I imagine there's some in that crowd that were like, you know, I kind of wanted the leftovers to go home. I wasn't thinking I'd give these back. Which means the disciples probably had to do a little bit of petitioning, a little begging, a little fundraising, as we like to say. Look, the Bible is clear on this, and it's obvious what happens here, that the disciples, the the minister's provision will come in some form from the excess of what God gives to those he ministers or her that she ministers to. But it's it's important to understand that this principle isn't simply a, a call to give money or whatever. It's an issue of blessing to each party. Look what he says. There are 12 baskets. We know there are 12 apostles. Everyone's being blessed through the hands of someone else and yet the supply is from the Lord. The people were blessed through the hands of the disciples, the disciples were blessed through the hands of the people, but everyone could say, none of this is from me. Because no one in here is supposed to be outside that equation. Matthew ends this account with a punchline. He says there were 5,000 men in the crowd plus women and children. That number simply puts this miracle in perspective. That is, who among those disciples would ever have supposed that at the end of the day they would have fed 5,000 people with the food they had, those five and two, seven altogether that perfect, complete supply from God. But there's another reason he says there's 5,000, and this is what we end on. You know what the number five means in the Bible? It's the number of grace. Now, is it coincidence that there were 5,000 people there? Or that he says 5,000 and not 4,938? No, it's not a coincidence, and it's not a round number. 
The reason that Matthew wrote 5,000 and so did the other gospel writers is because the Spirit of God inspired them to put a five there for us so that when we saw that, we would understand this is about grace. That is the fundamental difference between how Pharisees ministered and how Jesus wants us to minister. Our service to Christ begins and ends with grace. It begins by the grace of God and the fact that you are saved and equipped and called into ministry as an act of God's grace. And then it continues in the way you minister to others, not holding their faults against them, not viewing their needs as unnecessary burdens. Rather, you seek out the weak because they give you the blessed opportunity to serve them. And we serve in the grace that Christ supplies to us, knowing we only have something valuable to offer someone else if we obtain it from Christ. And we ourselves depend upon the grace of God to get through the hard work of it all. Think about the power and the reach of a Christian community that truly lives out that style of grace-oriented ministry. Do you know what that would be? It would be a miracle. Let's pray. Father, give us that miracle, Father. We just put that before you and make that request plainly. We say it's a miracle not because it's impossible or that it's unheard of. It's a a miracle, Father, because we can't do it. Not on our own. I pray, Father, that you would gift the body here with the gifts, the desire, the heart, the humility, the love, the grace to serve one another without limit, without judgment. And then, Father, to learn from that so that we can minister to a world that knows you not at all, but desperately needs to. Give us a heart that wants that more than anything else, Father, because I know if you do that, a miracle will happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.